Before we look at, um, um, before I read this, I just want to call attention to two passages. You know that one of Psyche's trials takes her into the deadlands, to the, um, what we knew in the ancient literature is the underworld. The, the afterlife. Um, it's absolutely essential that, that she bring back something from death, that experience of death, in order for her to go on to what she's got to do. And you know that at the end of the book she's got to face a trial. She takes the gods to, to court, she brings her accusation against them, and then um, they're given a turn to bring their accusations against her. So the book ends with her facing a reckoning. Um, <coughs> But she, part of that ordeal requires that she, or Psyche, goes to the underworld. And you know, we've talked about this, the importance of the underworld, that very early on in the Iliad and the Odyssey, Odysseus cannot get home without visiting the underworld. He has to learn from the dead. There's something we have, there's, we have to make a place for the dead and what they have to speak to us if we're to go on to have the life we're supposed to have. Um, <clears throat> and I just want to um, to read two lines from Eliot that just happened to speak to this, because we've I think we've read them already, and and they're lines that we're likely to forget. But I want to repeat them right now because I think they're good to remember. So <clears throat> at the end of the first section, remember remember that Eliot Eliot's always describing situations in which um, we're there and not there. There's a dance and not a dance, a place and not a place. Because he's, he's helping us to see however much we're governed by our senses or our intellects, thinking that we know things, that there's very often a mystery that we're involved in that we don't see. And that's part of what we experience when we read through his poetry here. At the end of section one, you remember, um, he, he describes this uh, mid midwinter spring moment and um, and what it means and and its effect on the on the um, landscape around it and then he says if you, you don't have to go if you want you can find it but it's the end of the first section if you came this way taking any route starting from anywhere at any time or any season it would always be the same you would have to put off sense and notion that is get out of our senses get out of our heads both. We're about to enter the apophatic, the, 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 the way of negation, was what the church calls, yeah? The way of negation, or ap the apophatic kind of knowledge. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or carry a report. That pretty much covers it. I mean, those lines express everything that takes up our active life. To verify, instruct yourself, inform curiosity, carry a report, that's our life. We're not here to do that. You are here to kneel. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. And prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind, or the sound of the voice praying, and what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. 
Remember Fox at the end when she comes to him because after she gives her judgments, it, it's Fox that receives her and apologizes. He takes responsibility for what he didn't do because he's now dead. Being dead, he can say things to her he never could. How important it is it that somebody come back from the dead to help us see those things we don't hear in life. So, um, and what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. How much courage do we have to live in those moments when we're in the presence of mystery, we don't have reference points before or after, we're, we're in a mystery. The courage that it takes to be there. So I, we, know. Um, I was just excited. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, I want to read this too. Just It's another passage from what we've been reading that just speaks from, for what we're... Um, in the fourth section, I think this is where we're going today, but let me just read it anyway. Um, this is in the fourth section that I'm going to read in a second. But the second stanza is talking about torment. And he says, who then devised the torment love? Because Christ leaves us with two wounds. Okay, I think we usually think of our having one. We're wounded by our fall. Yeah, we carry that with us. That's a wound we carry. And we see it everywhere in Oriole. We see it, psyche bearing it. We carry the fall with us. It's a wound. The wound that I'm not sure that we're adequately aware of is that if, if we commit ourselves to Christ, if we take him seriously, we end up feeling another wound because we live so often aware that we don't love the way he does. I, I think I can, I mean, I don't know if I'm speaking for everybody, but I think if, 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 if you pray seriously and you want to love the way he does, and you, I mean, you're like, we're like Oriole. When she tries to change your life and find beauty, she wants, she wants to change. She finds it almost impossible. Every moment she trips up again and again and again. As soon as she wants to get better, she trips up. That with Christ in front of us all the time, we're aware of um, how imperfect our loves are. That we don't love the way that we, we our, our sins get in the way. So he says this, who then devised the torment? Love, that is, that's Christ. Love, love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame that is desire, the, the way we're wrapped in desire so much of our life, food, sex, things, approval, whatever, whatever it is that we want so badly. That is, we have these desires to, this is Dante, we, we have excessive desires for the world. How do we burn them off? The intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. We either give in to our desires all the time or are purified by a desire not our own. So I just wanted to just highlight those because it, it speaks so directly to what's going on with Till We Have Faces, and I'll come to it in a minute. But Okay. Um, Oh, actually, we're not doing four. We're doing three today. We're doing four next time. Turn to, to section three. A little giddy. <coughs> you remember section two ended with Elliot walking the, as a, probably a night marshal, 
during a bombing, or I, I'm supposing after the bombing just took place. It's a moment of devastation. And for Elliot, remember he talks about the, he describes the, 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 the planes um, after the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing. In one sense, that's an accurate description of the German planes as they're approaching London and then bombing it. But it's also an image of the Holy Spirit. And Eliot is conscious of what he's doing here because he's reminded us that very often grace comes in the form of suffering. We get so comfortable with our lives, we get really smug and complacent. It's, it so often takes something violent to shake us up. We talk, I mean, when we've read Flannery O'Connor, you remember that for her, you couldn't separate. Grace always involves a violence. It's a grotesque moment. The, the center of our faith is the most grotesque, most beautiful thing that ever has occurred or ever will. It's God on the cross. I mean, we're asked to pull contradictions together because that is an ugly, ugly, grotesque moment, and yet it's the most extraordinary, beautiful thing we will ever know. So most of these great poets give us images of that. And Eliot's doing it here. Eliot's walking through the street. It's after a bombing. He's described the plains in terms of an image that could serve as the ghost after the dark dove with a flickering tongue. Um, and then he, he ends that section with this description of all those things that will crown our life. Um, to set a crown upon, this is, the, this is the, the, remember, one of the gifts of the Spirit is counsel. Hmm. This stranger that he's meet, that he meets, this compound figure, which I think represents a number of influences in Eliot's life, ends his walk with him by saying, to set a pound, to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort, I will let, I'll, I will give you the gifts reserved for age. What do most people want in old age today in America? The goal, what we call the golden age, security, comfort, no worries, freedom. You know, um, God, is there anything more spoiling? This guy says, the gifts reserved for old age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. First the cold friction of an expiring sense without enchantment offering. No, that is, bitter tastelessness. It's like the bitter herbs of the Jews in the desert. That's one. Two, the conscious impotence of rage. What, what, what's the point of constantly going on about the problems of the world? As if they're going to save. The constant, the impotence of rage. Be because the older we get, I think the more we're aware of how deep the disorders of our world are. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. The older we get, we look back on our lives with regrets, thinking because what, what we did at the time we thought was so virtuous, and we look back ashamed. How fitting is this a description of Oriole? Yeah? I mean, over and over again, towards the end, she goes back and she all these things that begin to happen to make her re-examine those memories and learn to see that there were things there she didn't see at the time. So her eyes are opening, and, and in some ways, I think her heart is beginning to open, but we'll wait on that. Anyway, that's how it ends, okay? And the embarrassment we feel when people compliment us for things that we've learned to be ashamed of. So, as in so many of this, um, um, quartets, Eliot begins um, with an opening that's somehow affirming and then he immediately takes us to a darkness 
Every one of them is taken in the subway. Remember the nights that says, here it's this walk with this compound ghost. And then he ends saying, then fool's approval, approval stings and honor stains from wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds unless, unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in major. Remember that line I just read a minute ago from the fourth section. We, can only, we only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. The choice is ours. We either live in the passions, whatever we want excessively, um, or we're refined by fire, the spirit. Um, and the choice, the effects of the choices we make are real. Um, unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer, the day was breaking in the disfigured street he left me with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn. What a quiet end to what has to be a startling revelation. Okay? That's the end of the second section. Now I'll just read three. I'm not going to, I mean, I may make a brief comment, but I just want to read it and get on soon. Section three. There are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedgerow, Attachment to self and to things and to persons, detachment from self and from things and from persons, and growing between them indifference, which resembles the other as death resembles life. Being between two lives, unflowering between the live and the dead nettle, this is the use of memory for liberation, not less of love, but expanding of love beyond desire. That could almost point up the theme of the whole quartets, to move beyond desire to love. And just a note, I mean, I, this is sort of scholastic, but remember, desire, desire is unfulfilled. It longs to have an object. So long as we remain in desire, food, sex, things, whatever it is, so long as we remain in desire, we will be not at rest. Because it's only when that thing that we desire is attained that we rest. We're, we eat food, we want food, as soon as we eat it, we rest. But it, you, we all know that two hours later we're going to be hungry again. So the nature of desire is all, always keeps us restless. Love isn't because love is complete in itself. And it's, this is so important because I think people don't see God very God doesn't desire anything. He loves us. There's a completeness to what he offers in everything he does. God's complete. There's no end to him. So when, when Eliot uses the line, um, where did I? Um, not less of love, but expanding of love beyond desire. He's talking about the only way in which we can finally become free, to move beyond those desires into love itself. And so liberation from the future as well as the past Thus, love of a country begins as attachment to our own field of action and comes to find that action of little importance, though never indifferent. History may be servitude. History may be freedom. See, now they vanish, the faces and places, with the self which, as it could, love them to become renewed, transfigured in another pattern. Sin is behovely, but all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is Dame Julian. Um, it's, it's a motif. He introduces it here. He'll give it again, and then the poem will end on it. So hold on to these notes. Sin is behovely, 
but all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. If I think again of this place and of people not wholly commendable, of no immediate kin or kindness, but some of peculiar genius, all touched by a common genius, united in the strife which divided them, if I think of a king at nightfall, of three men and more on the scaffold, and a few who died forgotten in other places, here and abroad, and of one who died blind and quiet, why should we celebrate these dead men more than the dying? It is not to ring the bell backward, nor is it an incantation to summon the specter of a rose. We cannot revive old factions, we cannot restore old policies, or follow an antique drum. These men and those who oppose them, and those whom they opposed, accept the constitution of silence and are folded in a single part. Those of you who did Dante, remember when Dante gets to the, um, I think it was the Circle of the Sun, where he meets the Dominicans and Franciscans. I may have the, the, um, the planet wrong. Um, when we get into the Dominican order, it shows St. Thomas speaking to um, Dante and Beatrice. And when the souls in the circle are identified, it's, it's a number of holy souls and saints, but it's also a number of Thomas's enemies, people he absolutely opposed. Because they're in heaven, whatever differences they had, Thomas understood absolutely clearly how important it was to have somebody who differed from him because it helped clarify the truth. When somebody said it was this, it put him in a position of saying, no, no, it's not quite that, it's this. So that dialogue was absolutely essential. If you read the Thomas questions, you know it, it seemed, this seems to be so, this seems to be so, this seems, and then they'll say, no, it's not that way at all, and then he answers them. And he always does it with a principle. He'll say, on the contrary. He'll go to a principle who will help explain everything else. But those differences, that dialogue, is absolutely essential to truth. And Eliot's describing this thing because in our life we're so divided by party. Father's words this morning, we polarize ourselves. Um, do we have a spirit within us that will help us reconcile, to bring things together? We can't bring things together unless we distinguish. That's fundamental to St. Thomas. We, there's no way to bring things together if you don't see the difference between this and this. And, but then the problem becomes, is there, is there some point of reconciliation, some way to bring them together? In some, kind, in some instances not, but, but he's describing that situation here. Um, united in the strife which divided them, the king, the political problems. These men and those who opposed them and those whom they opposed accept the constitution of silence and are folded in a single party. Whatever we inherit from the fortunate, we have taken from the defeated. There it is again, opposition is the fighting. What they had to leave us, a symbol, a symbol perfected in death, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, by the purification of the motive in the ground of our beseeching. We're back to prayer and the need to be purified. Okay. Okay. I'm afraid I set Sue up. <laughs> she came on Monday night, so I was shocked to see her there. Because, uh, but she said, "How could I not after it, after the tease I sent out?" Yeah. So 
see what I do under this pressure. <laughs> Just very, very quickly, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen the importance of the tension between this possessive love that all of us have, what we could call our, is our selfishness. That there's something selfish in every one of us. Um, it's one of the effects of our world. We've talked about that. Once we turn our love away from God towards the world, we can't get enough of it. And it cripples it. It makes us weak. Um, but, and we've seen in this book how, how, the, how the way in which, in this case, Oriol uses her rational powers to keep her where she is. She keeps using reason to minimize, to explain away, to deny, to do everything except come to the truth. I mean, in that way, she is very modern, absolutely modern, absolutely ancient, because we know the importance given to the intellect in our age. I mean, it is the supreme power. People equate knowledge with power. The more we know something, the more we can control it. Fox is a great image of the modern rationalist. He looks backward to the Greek world, too. Um, but the, the theme of possessive love and all, and all that the human soul does with reason to cover it up, to hide it. The brighter the intellect, the greater the dangers, because people with gifted minds are more capable of covering it up. Um, so seeing with our powers of reading and how often we misread, we've talked about it often. She, 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 she has hints that there's something there in the first visit to Psyche's palace, but she still denies him, even though that night when she goes home and she sees the palace, she can't fully admit it. The next time when she goes, she goes intending to do some harm, and she does to herself. It's her way of blackmailing Psyche, forcing her to do something Psyche wouldn't do on her own. And there's no way she can, she can miss what happens. The god actually appears to her and speaks to her. She sees him, hears him. When she goes home to Fox and tells him what happened, you know that Fox is aware she's keeping a secret. So she's half lying to herself. She's using her mind because of the way in which the mind seems to give her control over everything that happens. And at that moment, she puts on her mask. And from that point on, she lives hidden. That, that's what I've described that moment when she enters the darkness, or her own darkness. She isolates. Spiritually, she's in some ways isolated, um, even from herself. Um, that's where we've been. Um, the, we are heading towards a crisis. If we took the book by um, eight chapter sections, we get this. It begins with Oriole's mother dying or cutting her locks, and um, um, Gloam suffering from the plague, and the priest coming to ask for a sacrifice. The, the king is terrified. He thinks it's going to. Um, did everybody get. Hold on, Don, before you just hold on, because has everybody gotten some of this? Because if you've not, you should get it. I don't know if. if if there's some left, is everybody, did everybody get some food? Did you all? I know you came in late. And Lois, did you get some? You don't Help yourself. Um, Psyche um, is in the tower and Oreo goes to visit her. Um, in the second section, um, we move from Oreo's experience of Psyche at the palace um, with her meeting with Trunia when, he, when he's escaping his brother and seeking um, asylum there. And the last, it's from that point when Oriole becomes queen 
to her own judgment at the end, her reckoning. So that's the whole of it. Um, um, that's the whole story. I want to come back to the final things, but I want to touch on a couple of themes here that are really important for the end of our work. Um, I want to take a second with this notion of the contemplative act of life, um, because it bears on this idea of possessive love. You know that the church has always um, um, had these two strong traditions. We could call the active tradition and the mystical tradition, if you want to call it that. The philosophic basis of this came from Aristotle, Plato in, indirectly, but largely Aristotle. In Aristotle's Ethics, he says that the highest, listen to this, because this is stunning. Aristotle says that the highest form of life is contemplation. That's a Greek philosopher. The highest form of happiness is contemplation. Is, could there any, be anything more different from our way of looking at the world? We think happiness will come from doing things and getting what we want. Yes? think so. Aristotle says the highest, for, highest form of happiness is contemplation because in contemplation we turn our mind on that which can't be otherwise, that can't be changed. It's God. To put our minds there, put our minds at rest. We're one with God. The, happy, the joy, the mystical, what we call the mystical union or mystical joy can't be surpassed. And the church believes that. I mean the church has got these two traditions. The call of the church that's why, the, by the way, that's why the ancient world looked down on manual labor. Because in manual labor, um, your mind was taken off the highest end, which is God. So the Greeks tended to look disfavorably, negatively at, at manual labor. We know that they looked down slaves and using a slave to do certain things. When Christ came, that changed. Because Christ's father was a carpenter. We're assuming he grew up learning to build things. But the whole, the whole effort of, of Christ is to move into the world to transform it. So there's an active element in what everybody does. And, and there's a belief that the work we do is good. Um, the, what, the work that a priest does, the work that a carpenter does is good, should be praised. Here's the problem. In the contemplative life, we put our minds on that which can't be other than it is. It's an eternal good so our souls can come to rest. The act of life always requires an object. We need something, a, a patient, which means there's always an element of, the danger is that there's an element of self-interest to the act of life, that what we do requires another, and it puts, in a, it's, it puts us in a position of superiority. We do something for another. So the danger for the act of life is selfishness. It's a hidden, it's a hidden possessive love. Is that clear? A, a teacher requires a student. How many teachers get in their egos? I mean, it scares me. How many teachers get in their ego to show how smart they are? How much of their interest is, is to show how smart they are? How true is that of a doctor, a lawyer, a physicist, a, you know, that um, you are so engrossed in what you do because it's a way of affirming yourself. So one of the dangers in the act of life is that it may conceal a possessive love. It requires an object to treat another as an object, to use them. I've been skeptical, I think it's funny, I, Suzanne serves me grouse about this forever. I mean, I, I am very skeptical of professionals because professionals as a class as I know them are too full of themselves. 
makes me wonder what I don't see about myself. Sometimes it gets frightening. Um, we need an object. I've turned away, I've left doctors because I don't like their attitudes. I mean, I, I come, some come immediately to mind, one, one particular. It was a man so full of himself, there's no way I could have gone back to that man. And I, I don't want to put my hands, my life in the hands of somebody like that. I don't trust him. So we know that, I'm sure everybody's had that experience with a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, that in the act of life there's this danger. What's interesting in the Bible, I can't remember the scene with Martha and Mary, who are images of the contemplative and active life, remember? And Christ said, was it Martha complaining? Martha, Martha, you were anxious about many things. Mary yes, has chosen good. the better part, good. and I will not take it from her. Oh, good, bless her soul. There it is. She has chosen the better part, like Aristotle. You know, she is with her end. And Mary is the active one doing all the serving. Now, the other way around. So the two together form the complete life of the church. The church recognizes the importance, the value of both of them. But clearly one has a higher end because the soul is one with God. So, okay. So I, this is sort of tangential, but I, I, it's a good way of looking at um, Oriole. Oriole doesn't see it. She doesn't see herself very well. But this possessive love is behind so much of what she does, even when she's doing good. And remember the lines we just read in Eliot, um, for, for which we took for virtue, remember? The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which, you once took for, which once you took for exercise of virtue. How could that have been so unless it was because there was something possessive behind what we were doing, even if we didn't see it at the time? Okay? So, the theme of poetry. In one sense, this is beautiful, in one sense, till we have faces, is self-reflexive. Very often poetry is. I don't want to go, it's a big thing in literary circles. Professors go nuts about this thing. I think there's a lot to it, but it's self-reflexive. Remember when Oriol comes to the, the forest chapel and she talks to the holy man, the priest, who tells her the story of Istra? Um, and it's, that's the turning point. Remember how important that, that causes Oriol to go home and write. Because to her, it, it, it's an evidence of the perpetuation of the lies, the lies by the gods. But the, but the priest says, this is a sacred story. And I want to go back to that because it touches on Lewis's belief in what he called the myth of poet. This is really important. According to Lewis, um, mythopoeic poetry was the highest kind of poetry because it went to some ultimate, final, universal story, which was the prototype, the source of all other stories. And there, you can't be in the dark about that. That story is God coming into the world. Somebody coming from a transcendent order, taking on flesh, entering the world, taking on our human nature to redeem it. That is the story. That is the myth of history. Um, there was nothing like that before Christ came. There will be nothing like it afterwards. Okay? And if you look at the ancient stories in the pagan pre-Christian world, they're all hinting at it. The Oristia, the gods coming down and feasting on humans. Houston's feastings on themselves. We've talked about this again. They're all anticipating. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Perusia, we talked about. Every one of those pointing to the, a king returning in judgment. 
Where, how in the world did that pagan world come to that? It has to be an expression of something so intuitive, so deep in our psyche, that the greatest poets came to it. So for Lewis, um, mythopoeque was the highest, in some sense, the highest kind of knowledge because it participated in this ultimate truth. And till we have faces is an example of it. It's reflexive, it's, it's illustrating the same thing because what he's showing us is that Christ is in the soul at work. Um, so this is an important storytelling. It's, <laughs> put it, let me put it more starkly. It's on the basis of that story that she hears in the temple that she writes her charge. How powerful are stories. Um, um, earlier we talked about the tension between faith and reason. Now that tension expands because it's no longer just faith and reason, it's vision and reason. And it's really interesting if you, I mean, this, this, we've, we've, we've moved beyond a strictly empirical world into something mythic towards the end because Oriole keeps describing her experiences as entering a vision, as if she walked in a door. There are times when she knows she has dreams, but she explains a couple of them as vision. Now, I want to take a second because we can pass over that. Was the showing in France a dream? South America, the visions of Mary? I mean, how could anybody experience that except walking into the presence of the other world? So according to our faith, those things happen. Um, Lewis is describing a number of experiences with Oriol that correspond to that. It's not a dream. We're not going into the Freudian or spiritual unconscious. Freud has no notion of the spiritual unconscious, the animal unconscious. Show. We're not entering a spiritual unconscious. We're entering something real. They can only describe this as a, not a dream, but a vision. So the, the boundaries between the life as we experience it rationally, according to reason, um, is shattered. It, it, the threshold between two worlds breaks and we enter into something more. She does, here. So once again, it's expanding our ideas of knowledge, what we know, beyond what we know as our senses or abstractions of our head. She enters a concrete world and it's, it's clear that this is a part of something spiritually going on in her. We are headed into strange territory at the, at the end because we're entering into a, a spiritual dimension. It's as if what was experiences Psyche's castle before has enlarged and it's become, it's become relevant, related directly to her and it, to Oriole. We know how important the land of the dead is because in her vision she has to go into the land of the dead. The whole question of sacrifice has, has gotten larger and larger through the story. Um, when, she, when she looks at the pictures on the murals, every one of them in some sense involves a sacrifice. Um, something's happening to her and, and, and indirectly psyche. Psyche keeps coming into the picture. The spring renewal is an important time. You remember when she goes to the, to the house of Angat? Um, it's important to remember this. Um, that spring rite, renewal rite, in pagan times, is an anticipation of what we know as Easter. We're lining up with our own Caesar, right? Remember when 
um, after they're there all night and they throw the doors open in the morning, the crowds are cheering. He's born again, born again. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'd be surprised if you didn't say, we're going to be saying the same thing in a week. Yeah. Um, that, that right was with us before Christ came into the world. That was one of the more important right because it, it marked the renewal of spring, of, of earth and life returning after, after winter, after dying. So it's been with us forever. There's that mythopaic kind of knowledge again, these eternal myths. Um, and what's more important is, think about this, her change, her renewal coincides with that spring rain. Everything that happens to her happens to her in that season. So in one sense, I mean, I'm not sure what to make of it. You can say that's a coincidence, but in another, I think it's a way of saying that she's becoming one finally with her nature. She's more in tune with nature again. And remember, God's the creator of nature. Um, and then faces, the, this whole theme of faces. How can we see face to face? How can we see Christ in person until we have faces? We will not see him until we're like him. And that's probably the great problem of the book. Because at the end, Oreo reaches this point where she learns to see she's unga. She sees how ugly she is. And she despairs because she can't see herself ever becoming beautiful. How will I ever be beautiful? What's her first response? Kill herself. She wants to kill Unga because she, she, she learns to hate the ugliness inside of her. So until um, we have faces, we will, not, we will not see God face to face until we have faces. So that's just some of the major themes. Um, I want to I I look at those four murals right now with you guys. Um, but let me, let me, let me breathe. Any questions or comments, questions you guys have before we look at those murals? Me. Mary, you had a really big question last week. No questions now. Oh, I have lots of questions, but I can't formulate them right now. <laughs> okay, I want to look at those four murals and see if I can't make clear something I did not make clear on no, Monday night. I don't know that everybody was here when we did Moby Dick. You know that when in the middle of Moby Dick, I reached a point when we were about ready to leave land and go out to sea, and I just realized that there was a whole dimension to what was going on that I had not dealt with. And I had to go back and redo those chapters with you guys because it, and if you remember, I gave a, all these handouts on heresies in history and um, Luther's consubstantial on the church's, I mean, it, a, a whole dimension of meaning opened when they left land to go to sea because going from land to sea was entering a metaphysical order beyond our senses and I remember being really embarrassed um, I, I think I, I don't know that I've ever thanked you guys enough even though I, I've said thank you a number of times I've, I've meant it I've taught the Iliad all my life I mean I really know that book well 
When I was teaching again with you guys, I saw something that I had never seen before. I, I put, what I did was put a circle, I think I gave it to you guys, that went from the early battles, through all the battles, the, you know, to the final battle, and I suddenly saw that there was an order that I'd never seen in my life. And that didn't surprise me because I know Homer orders everything up. Every great artist does. You can see in order that, that it's moving from a false kind of honor to a good one. And the deaths, the battles that have to take place. Moby Dick was the same way. If you read all the gams, you know all the gams that when, when the Pequod meets all the ships, those gams form a circle around Moby Dick. And every gam reveals itself by the way it looks at that mystery. We, we learn something about each, it's like, think about the people present on the Stations of the Cross when Christ was coming across. If you put Christ at the center of the cross and look at the people, you could define categories of people by the way they by the way they related to him, how they understood what was going on. Some people were in tears. Some people mocked him. Some people jeered. Some people didn't understand. You know, he, he, what he did was reveal a certain relationship to everybody. I think something like that is going on here. What Lewis is doing with those four last pictures helps us understand something about Oriol and the struggle that she's going through. So I want to look at those. But I, no questions here before we do that? Is everybody okay? Okay, then let's get to the heart of this. Quickly, a, a brief, brief summary. Um, things begin to change when Oriol go, when Psyche is sacrificed, she loses her sister, and she, clearly she's acting out of some response that she's mine. She's mine. We've seen that again, and she even says that in her complaint at the end. She's mine. Do you not get it, God? She's mine. <coughs> he tries to persuade her. She doesn't. Psyche hopes she'll come back. She returns, except this time with a vengeance. She remembered it's during, after that first time when she said, if only the gods would give me a sign. And we've talked about that. You know, that that's our wanting the divine to accommodate to our powers of reason. It's to make it fit us. Um, she doesn't get a sign. She goes back and she threatens to hurt herself, and she does. She forces Psyche to test the God to see if he's real, and in doing that, disobey him. So she's encouraged, in her own pride, she's encouraging her sister to do something that goes against her love. Um, when the light comes on and the god wakes up, we, we don't see it, but we know there's this explosion, this fury. There's that beautiful line where he says, um, how do you put it, the most terrible monster would never subdue me as, as much as the beauty of that god, the anger of him. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary passage that it was that, it was that overwhelming that the beauty was so great that it terrified more than that a, um, a, a monster. When she returns after the second one, she doesn't tell Fox everything and he's aware of it. He even says to her, I know you're keeping a secret. Um, he makes it clear to her that it won't, he will always love her even if she does. Um, shortly after that, her father injures himself and um, she begins to assume duties as queen. Trunia comes seeking asylum. She fights his brother Aram and kills him. Redival marries Trunia and Oriol begins to settle affairs. She, she is in, in every way a good queen in the way her father wasn't. 
Um, she frees the fox first thing. She, um, she improves the working conditions in the mines and she gives the men an incentive for doing good work by offering them her freedom. So everything she does as a, as a queen is really good. And she hangs Bata. I guess we're supposed to assume that that's good too. Um, at that point, years pass when the kingdom seems to settle. There's no threats from external enemies. She's, because Truni is the king in Fars, she's there at peace with Fars. She decides to go on a journey to um, Esur. She has to pass through Fars and she sees how heavy redivals become. And, um, and it's then from there that she goes to the, just on a walk, this casual walk, she, discover, she hears the bells and discovers this um, forest chapel. So she goes and it's there that she meets the priest. I don't want to, ordinarily I'd take time with this, but I'm not going to, unless anybody wants something, we, I'll stop for a minute. I want to get onto the murals. But it's in that experience in the first chapel when she hears the priest describe that story that she's outraged, really outraged, because for her it's a confirmation that the gods are liars. It's at that point she goes home to write the book. And it's, and she, I want to just, now I just want to look at that and then I want to look at those murals with you. I'm going to put you guys all on trial. Okay. Um, this is page 271. This is after, just after she leaves the chapel. Yeah. The foxes died. Wait, wait, is this? Am I? No, no, this is. At the beginning of chapter 21, 271, she's looking ahead. This is a proleptic moment. She's looking ahead to something that decided everything. The thing for whose sake I tell this journey happened at the very end of it. What was that? The story in the chapel. So we get it now. The guy tells her... Um, wait, wait, hold on. Mike, sorry. Yeah, on page 275, she's there in the chapel, and the priest tells her the story in the middle of page 275. She's so lately godded that she is still rather a poor goddess stranger. Yet for one little silver piece, I will tell you the sacred story. And down below, when she hears it, she so identifies with it that it intensifies her anger. Now, two things here. One is... The church fathers had this phrase. I should have written it down on the on the on the board. I didn't. Um, Deus fit homo ut homo fieret Deus. Deus fit homo ut homo fieret Deus. God became human, so that humans might become God. That's the central tenet of our belief as Catholics. The by taking on our human nature and returning to heaven, he took our nature with us and offered us a share in his divinity. You want me to, I'm gonna write that down. Go ahead. Dave.
full significance of what happening at the end will be missed if we don't see that. Remember the priest's words. Um, she has only just begun to be a goddess, for you must know that like many other gods, she began by being mortal. That's at the heart of our belief. Um, Psyche began as a person in the, in the spiritual life that I'm going to come to in a minute, that is, she begins as an image of the natural human soul. But the end of it was, be, was to become divinized, to share a life with Christ. So in, indirectly, the priest has some sense of that. Stranger, for one little piece of silver, I'll tell you the sacred story. Thank you. And he tells her the story. And it's at that point she so identifies with the story. And I know we all know this. That when we're in the middle of a good story, it's like we're one with it. That's the, that's the value of literature. Um, now, it's at this point that a number of things begin to happen. Um, um, you remember that they're visited by Taryn, who tells the story of Redival when she was small, how she loved Oriole, and then the fox came into the picture, and Oriole began to turn from Redival to fox, and Redival felt lonely. And then Psyche came into the picture, and Oriole turned to her, and Redival felt even lonelier. So what we're getting is how universal this condition is, that all of us want friends. Lewis made, had this, by the way, in, in the book he wrote called Four Loves, he has this description of what is going on here. He says, when A and B are together, there's a real friendship, everything's good. But when C comes into the picture and A has to share B with C, suddenly he gets envious or jealous or add D to the picture and he loses more of him. That there's this tendency of possessive love in all of us. So what we're learning is it was there with Redival. That all the while, while Oriol thought this was peculiar to her, Redival was going through exactly the same thing, that she felt lonely, abandoned, unloved, and she never saw it. Oriole never saw it. So she's beginning to move out of herself, and she's beginning to see other things that she hadn't before. Um, and then she has that meeting with Ansett after Bardia dies, and um, hell hath no fury. These two women go out. I mean, there's a moment when they look at each other, and they realize they both loved him but the bitterness they feel because both of them share that love. I mean, there's a moment when they, I mean, if they had daggers, they would have killed each other. And I, I remember the line, um, where is it? I don't, should have got this. Um, where's that? Somebody help. Oh, here. Oh, I, I got it. Um, when Ansett describes Oriole and Barty's relation, Barty, this is about 295 or so, she starts saying things that imply a criticism of Oriole, and Oriole gets really angry <coughs> because she always thought of herself as just being this queen. But um, An Ansett describes the weaknesses of or Barty. He'd come home exhausted, worn out after work. 295 at the top. Yes, a, a tree that's eaten away within. Eaten away, and with what? I never knew this. I suppose not. That is, the way in which she describes what happens to Barty is through terms of the Eucharist. Drinking his blood, devouring him. We've talked, I think, didn't I go to this, to the Divine Comedy, that that's a central image at hell, at the bottom of hell, these feasting images. We either, we either give our lives up and offer our lives as bread and wine for others, or we end up devouring them, because we use people for ourselves. 
middle of 296. Um, Oriol makes the comment about Bardia's strength because he was such a, a strong, courageous man, middle of 296. Who that knows men would doubt it? They're harder, but we're tougher. They do not live longer than we. They do not weather a sickness better. Men are brittle, and you, queen, were the younger. I mean, Oriole's hearing some pretty stinging comments right now from Barty's wife. Um, and then she, she speaks of Oriole for what she left Ansett as Barty's wife. All you left me, queen, left you, this is the top 297, left you, fool. What mad thought is in your mind? Oh, I know well enough that you were not lovers. You left me that. The divine blood will not mix with subjects. You left me my, my share. Go down below. I'll not deny it. I had what you, what you left of him. Now Oriole's furious, and then she, the two realize that they both shared this love. And for a moment, there's a union. They share it. It's like they come out of themselves to share it, and immediately they go back on page... Um, they're described in terms of daggers. If they pulled out daggers, they would have killed each other. Middle of 299. Um, Oriol says to did you speak only to wound, or did you believe what you said? Believe, I do not believe, I know, that your queenship drank up his blood year by year and ate out his life. Lewis is being precise. As Dante, remember we talked, I think, at the end of, of the Inferno, when we see Satan, Satan's eating. Ugolino's eating. All the last images of the Inferno are of feasting. Why? If that's the opposite of heaven, and it is, what would you expect in heaven? A God who offers himself as blood and wine for people to live. Here it is again. If we don't offer ourselves, we end up eating other people. Our eating habits don't just aren't confined to food. Um, middle of 300, um, Oriole's puzzled that Ansett would have let Bardia do all this if she loved him. Notice the difference between a possessive love and a more sacrificial love. Um, do you think I'd lift up my finger lift, if lifting it would have stopped it? And you could and you can bear that? Because Ansett was less possessive. You ask that, O Queen Oriole, I begin to think you know nothing of love. Oh no, I'll not say that. Yours is a queen's love, not commoners. Perhaps you who spring from the gods love like the gods, like the shadow root. They say the loving and the devouring are all one. Now she gets furious below um, because Oriole talks about having saved his life in battle. Um, where a woman's life, where a woman's are when she has borne eight children, yes, saved his life. Why, you had use for it. Thrift, queen, now this is fury. Too good a sword to throw away. Fa, you're full-fed, gorged with other men's lives, a woman's too. Bardia's mine, the foxes, your sisters, both yours. So here's the universal conduct. There's not anything in Oriole's life that hasn't been a kind of devouring, particularly with those people she loves. How, how great is that indictment? And if we, remember I've said we should all identify with, if we see that, it, I mean, how is it possible to look out our lives and wonder how much we've been devouring, particularly the people we say we love? Um, she leaves, and she's sickened by what she sees, and there, um, and um, she goes to the right. 
the spring ripe, okay? It's after that ripe that the visions begin piling up and this is where the serious turn takes place. You remember on page 311, the father comes to her in something like a dream and they go below the pillar room. Um, and um, I just want to spend a minute with that and then look at the murals. What's the significance of those two levels? They dig through the pillar room to a smaller, narrow one, narrow one that seems to be clay, like they've gone into the earth below. And then she looks at the mirror. What's this? Anybody want to take a stab at the significance of that? I don't know where it is exactly, but I remember thinking that when they go to the first one, it's earth. And I remember Unget being described as earth. Then they go to the next one, and it's like water and something. And I remember the God of the Mountain being called those two exact things. So that's what came into my mind. But I don't, I don't know what yeah. the page is. Let me, let me go. Remember, the, the, the mirror was removed, first of all. But when the father takes her into those depths, there's a mirror there. And it's there that she learns that she looks at the mirror and sees Ungut. Let me offer you my thought on this. We've talked about the image of the city, that the city is a place of self sufficiency. In one sense, it's the fundamental denial of our ties with God. Is that clear? We, we like to think we're self-sufficient. We can get along and do everything we want. That's the nature of the human city. Remember, it came into existence after, after um, Cain's exile. Yes? Yeah. Enoch is the founder of the first city. It's Cain's son. The city comes into existence in, in an attempt to live without God, to be self-sufficient. When Oreo looked in the mirror in the pillar room, she saw what she saw in appearance. However she appeared, whatever ugliness. When she goes to the depths, it seems to me she's going beneath the city to a condition prior. What she's seen is the fallen soul, the ugliness. What Fox will say later, when he, when he tried to take responsibility after she reads her complaint, the Fox said, my fault. This was my fault. I didn't teach you, how did you about this horrible image that, you know, that Angus is the soul. Um, it's, it's like his mind wanted to cover everything up, to gloss over it. Um, so I think the, the mirror that we get there is in some ways beneath the self-sufficiency that we live by, so much of what we do. <coughs> you can call it a spiritual, it's, a, it's an image of the soul itself in its spiritual condition. Um, now let me go to these, I want to go to these four murals. So she gives her complaint, she reads her accusations against the gods, and then the judge that she's brought to says enough, and so she's silenced, and it's at that point that she realizes if he had not stopped her, she would have gone on forever. I see that as an infernal condition. That's hell. I hope everybody, she would have gone on. That's the moment we see in Dante's, that people choose something, they do it in life, and when they go to the next life, they keep doing it without even realizing that's eternity. That's what they want, that's what they've got. Is that clear? She would have gone on. And um, um, once she stops, her, her father speaks from below and says, I'll lessen her. <laughs> and then the fox says, uh, I'll get her. And then she jumps off into his arm and he takes her to the four murals, okay? Now let's go there because I, wanna, I want, what does she discover here? Um, and by the way, those of you who did the Aeneid will know this. 
in Virgil's Aeneid, when Aeneas, after eight years of wandering, he comes to Carthage. When he comes to Carthage, he looks on Juno's temple. This is a, this is a trope, a, a, a literary commonplace. It's, it's what people do. Um, Virgil's doing it. I mean, Lewis is doing this because he knew Virgil well, and Virgil helped him with this. When Aeneas comes to that temple, he looks at the story of the Trojan War, looking at the Iliad and, and the stories about Aeneas himself. What he sees is a hero fighting that war. Now think about how much, those of you who not read it, just hold on for a second. Think about how much of an image, how, how deceptive that image is. Because he, he's presented as a hero. The last eight years of his life, after Troy was destroyed, he spent those eight years trying to found cities and failed in every respect. He was trying to follow the God's will. Every, every city he tried to found failed. He's, just, he's trying to find out what God wants him to do. So think about the difference between the image of himself that he saw during the war that the people presented and how he must feel about himself. Okay? So this is a commonplace. Fox brings her to this, out, this chapel-like place with these walls with murals on them. Okay? Now, let's take a look at them. 339. Everything is coming down to this. Now we before it and I could see the story told. I saw a woman coming to the riverbank. You remember that Oriole herself did that. When, when she wanted to ch change, after she realized she was hunger, hunger, she wanted to change, wanted to take a sword and kill herself and she knew she couldn't, so she goes to the river and a voice cries out, don't do it. Um, it's such an, sorry. Sorry, if somebody can find that before I do. 315. Where is it? 315. 315. On 318. Oh. Thanks, Bev. The, a voice cries out and says, do not do it. Um, and she wondered if, uh, the, remember she heard the God's voice when Psyche's castle was shattered. Lord, who are you, said I. Do not do it, said the God. You cannot escape Ungat by going to the Deadlands, for she is there also. Die before you die. There is no chance after. Lord, I am Ungat. So immediately after she sees that she's Ungat, she wants to kill herself, to, to kill off Ungat, and, and the God says don't do that. Now on page... Sorry... Um, 339, the picture before her shows a woman going to the river to drown herself. 339, she was tying her ankles together, 340, with her girdle. I looked closer at her. She was not I, she was Psyche. I'm too old and have no time to begin to write all over again of her beauty. But nothing less would serve, and no words I had would serve even then to tell you how beautiful she was. It was as though I had never seen her before, or had I forgotten. Now hold on to that, because we've got to talk about the relationship between Oriole and Psyche. Suddenly, this voice cries out, or it's, it's Oriole saying, Do not do it, do not do it. I cried out madly as if she could hear me. Um, that's the first one. The second... Um, nevertheless, she stopped and untied her ankles and went on. The fox led me to the next picture, and it too came alive. There she describes Psyche, or she sees Psyche trying to gather the wool, you know, with these giant rams. 
Huh? Seeds. Oh, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, thanks. Seeds. Um, and she has to sort them all out, and it looks like two graded jobs, but Psyche gets the help of the ants, and Psyche's happy. Um, in all of these things, she's, um, she's not undergoing any labor at all. What does this correspond to? Vision dream, that, or the thought that, that Oriole had, that she had to sort out all these ideas. And yep. Look at page 287. This is after she comes back from the Forest Chapel and starts to write her book, and she says, 287, since I cannot mend the book, I must add to it. To leave it it was would be to die perjured. I knew so much more than I did about the woman who wrote it. What began, what began the change was the very writing itself. Now you know that the other changes take place of it, um, about Redival and Ansett. But she begins to write, and um, going over to 290, So back to my writing and the continual labor of mind to which it put me began to overflow into my sleep. It was a labor of sifting and sorting, separating motive from motive and both from pretext. And the same sorting went on every night in my dreams, but in a changed fashion. I thought I had before me a huge hopeless pile of seeds, wheat, barley, poppy, rye, millet, whatnot, and I must sort them out and make separate piles, each, each all of one kind. I must do it. I did not... Why I must do it, I did not know, but infinite punish would qualify me. She's dread, I mean, there's a dread here. She doesn't feel like she can do it, but that's what she has to do. That's the second picture, okay? Third, top of 341. Here we were back in the pasture of the gods. I saw Psyche creeping. This is where she's trying to gather the golden fleece, hoping that, um, that having it, she'll become beautiful. Now, I'm going to go on. Um, the fourth one and the next one, at the bottom of 341. In the next picture, I saw both Psyche and myself, but I was only a shadow. We toiled together over those burning sands, she with her empty bowl and I with a book full of my poison. She did not see me. She's got this empty bowl. An eagle comes to her, to Psyche, takes the bowl and fills it up with water and brings it back. And page 342. The eagle came to her, took her bowl and brought it back to her, brimful of the water of death. Now, how are we to understand three and four? Let me offer three. Oriole reaches that point in her life where she sees she's ungood. Page 322-323. In the middle of 322, I had a cold fear that I was at the same work again. I could mend my soul no more than my face unless the gods helped. And why did the gods not help? What's the most important thing for her right now? To become beautiful. She's seen how ugly she is. She's tried to kill herself. Yeah? She knows that she will not attain her end if she's not beautiful. I could mend my soul no more than I could. 
Baba, a terrible sheer thought, huge as a cliff, towered up before me, infinitely like to be true. No, no man will love you though you, are, though you gave your life for it unless you have a pretty face. So might it not be, the gods will not love you unless you have the beauty of soul in either race, for the, the love of men or the love of a god, the winners and losers are marked out from birth. We bring our ugliness in both kinds with us into the world, with it our destiny. There's an ugliness to our souls when we come into the world, whether we know it or not. And how, particularly for a woman, if she's a beautiful woman or, or ugly, she will measure herself against that. What's at issue here is inner beauty. So what's going on in this third, it seems to me, is, is the quest for beauty. To acquire a beauty of face, of soul, so that she will be loved. And she knows that she can't do it without the God's help. Now go back to four. What's this water stuff? This water. Look at 325. I now despaired of ever ceasing to be Ungat. She sees Psyche performing these tasks effortlessly. She can't. I now despaired of ever ceasing to be Ungat. Though it was spring without in me, a winter which I thought must be everlasting locked up all my powers, it was as if I were dead already, but not as the god where Socrates bade me die. Yet all the time I was able to go about my work doing and saying whatever was needful and no one knew that there was anything amiss. Indeed, the dooms I gave, that is the judgment, sitting on my judgment seat about this time were thought to be ever even wiser and more just than before. It was work on which I spent much pains and I, I know I did it well, but the prisoners and plaintiffs and witnesses and the men rest, uh, the rest now seem to me more like shadows than real men. Can anybody link that up with this third mural? Back on 340. No, I, I mean, I think you said it pretty well. That's why it's so hard to answer. Because to me, the golden fleece was like the golden locks that she saw in the mm -hmm. Bolt, only much more deep, much more applying to her soul. Yeah. But it's just, you have to work at yourself, and she was still at the point of saying it's the God's fault, a little bit, and here, I was, when I, I just wrote down like the whole comparison when it goes, her time to do it and Psyche's time to do it, it's always so hard for her. And it's always so easy for Psyche, and it's it's just the trust in God. Like she just doesn't. She always tries to do it herself, and you know, and admitting she's wrong or whatever. It's like the what Father said today with the we we it was the wrong. You know, we didn't want that Messiah. You know, and whereas Psyche always placed her faith in God, even when she looked at the castle from the very beginning, she's always given herself over to it. Whereas you know. Orwell's always fought it like the like the Pharisees who, when they had this Messiah in front of them, were like, well, do we admit we're wrong? 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's pride. Yep, yep. I think. Are you asking about the water part? Or the I'm asking about both, but I want to go. The, the third one is the fleece, and I think that's a little bit clear. She wants beauty. Yeah, right. In the fourth one, um, oh, she's yeah. presented with this bowl of water back from the dead, but she doesn't go there. The eagle brings it to her. My sense, I, I'll throw this out. This is my sense of it. In the passage that I just read, she's relating herself to what Fox taught her about Socrates and the need to die. And she says of herself that she's, she said, it was as if I were dead already, but not as the god or Socrates bade me. My sense is that is at this point, something in her is dying to herself. And we see in the way she's making judgments, because she's making judgments unlike any that she's made before, and yet somehow she's out of it. I spent much pains, I know, you know, but the prisoners in plate of witness, the rest now seem to be more like shadows. This is interesting, because it's almost as if she's learning to die to herself, and because of it, she's able to make judgments she's never made before, but there's something impersonal in her. But that's the way the God and Socrates did say to do it. Yeah, but I, I, I think at this point, it's just not complete yet. This is the fourth one, the bowl, from the, the water from the dead, some life from the dying. Okay, so we've got suicide, the fleet, the golden fleece. Um, the seeds, the sword. Or the seeds, sorry. The seeds. Suicide, the sorting out, here, the sorting out. The fleece and this bowl of water from the dead that involves a kind of dying to herself because she says, it was like as if I were already dead, but she's alive and giving judgments. Now the fourth one, or the, the fifth one. Now on 343, the last mural shows Psyche going descending into the earth, deeper and deeper. Um, page 343 at the bottom, all even Psyche are born into the house of Ungut, and all must get free of her, or say that Ungut in each must bear Ungut's son and die in childbed or change. We either die as Ungut, that's the way we'll go to the next life, or we change. Um, that's our choice. And now Psyche must go down into the Deadlands to get beauty in a casket from the queen of the Deadlands, from death itself. Now you remember, when she goes down, she has three temptations. And think about Christ three, but this is three. This is Oriol, or Psyche now. In the first instance, she's showing going by a crowd, and the crowd, they're holding out their arms going on uh, page 344. Istra, Princess, Ungut, they called on her stretching called out, stretching their hands towards, stay with us, be our goddess, rule us, speak. It's the way in which people will flatter us to make of us something more than we are and appeal to our vanity and make us do that. And in that case, what would she do? Respond. Because she's told she, can't, she cannot speak to anybody, she can't turn back, she has to take this down and come back. If she, if she does, she loses it. So think about how large this temptation is, be our goddess, be with us. That is, somebody's in need of help, and you're our goddess. How much that it would, you're a smart person, you're a gifted person, somebody appeals to your gifts, what it would do to our vanity. Okay? Second one, she passes that temptation, and then the fox reaches out. The bottom 344. The fox was with me still, but he had, it was he who rose up in the cold light to meet Psyche by the wayside. Oh, Psyche, Psyche. It was no painted, he says, it was no painted thing. What folly is this? What are you doing wandering through a tunnel beneath the earth? What, you think it's the way to the deadlands? You think the gods have sent you here? All lies of priests 
There are no deadlines such as you dream of and no such God. Has all my teaching shot no more? What's the temptation here? Reason. 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 The reductive way, reason. The re all, reason. To show how smart a person is, he will always reduce things to make it less than himself. This is Fox. And this, by the way, this is Fox after he first caught her, remember, and said, my fault. Do you remember that? I should have looked at it. It's a wonderful line where he says, my fault. Um, oh, on page 336, top of the page. I'm to blame for most of this, and I should bear the punishment. I taught her as men um, teach a parrot to say, lies of poets and ungots of false standing. I made her think that... It, I made her think that end. I made her think that that ended the question. I never said. I made her think that ended the question. I never said to true an image of the demon within. Now he, this is the dead tongue with fire. What he didn't say to her is, "There's a demon in every one of us. There is this false image that we have to purge ourselves of." So here, the second temptation is Fox saying, what are you doing? It, it's, it's, it's minimizing, reducing, taking away, explaining away, doing everything you can to deny the miracle because to do that would require a sacrifice. Then the third, this one makes Psyche bite her lips because it's so painful. At the bottom of 345. Um, when I looked at it, I felt a pity that nearly killed my heart. It was not weeping, but you could see from its eyes. This is the creature who's making an appeal to Psyche. It's so pitiable, it's weeping, and it almost broke her heart. But you could see from the eyes that it had already wept them dry, despair, humiliation, entreaty, and endless reproach. You all know who this is. Endless reproach. Isn't that Oriole reproaching her sister because she turned away from her? All these were in it, and now I remember, and now I trembled for Psyche. I knew the thing was there only to entrap her and turn her from her path, but did she know it? And if she did, could she, so loving and so full of pity, pass it by? It was too hard a test. Her eyes looked straight forward, but of course she'd seen it out of the corner of her eye. A quiver ran through her, her lip twitched, threatened with sobbing. She set her teeth and the lip to keep it straight. Oh, great God's defender. God, you almost want to cry in this moment. Oh, great. This is Oriole. How important is this moment for Oriole? I mean, in one sense, she is completely losing herself to, because she wants, she, it's, her love has turned to her sister, in a sense, I think, probably for the first time. Because she's already admitted, she's like younger. I said to myself, hurry, hurry, hurry her past. It's, she's asking for the gods to help. The woman held out her hands to Psyche. I saw that her left arm dripped with blood. Then came her voice, and what a voice it was, so deep yet so womanlike, so full of passion, it would have moved you even if it spoke happy or careless things. But now who could resist it? It would have broken a heart of iron. Oh, Psyche, it wailed. Oh, my own child, my only love, come back, come back, back to the um, old world where we were happy together. Come back to mine. Psyche bit her lip, and she goes on. Now I want to stop just for a second. Um, <clears throat> describe the sequence of events. Um, I'm taking it that it's important. Can we, can we 
mark out the sequence. Now remember, um, Oreo's just given her judgment, and the gods have said enough, and she saw that her words were futile. She'd go on forever repeating herself. She'd go on forever defending herself, justifying herself, excusing herself. That's, that's eternity, that's hell. And the god says enough. And she, Fox takes her over to this, this um, little inner court. Um, it's green, it's a garden scene, by the way, we're back to the garden, where she awaits her own judgment. She's gonna have to present herself to the gods. And then she sees these four murals. Now, what do we learn about Oriol and Psyche from the sequence here? Because in each one of those instances, we're aware that there was a corresponding experience in Oriol, and Psyche was involved in it. So what's the relationship between the two of them, and what's the meaning of the sequence as, as it unfolds? To you guys now. <clears throat> What's the first one? I mean, the first one's pretty clear. Wouldn't you say she's going to kill herself? But that isn't the first experience with Oreo, and I had a question about why the seed wow. has changed. Go ahead. Her first experience was the sorting of the seeds, but that doesn't come first. In the, I mean, in the story, it comes first. In Oreo chronologically, it does. Yes. No, wait, the, well, the, the suicide comes first. Well, in the reading, the other one comes first, because I went back over this week when I was going to come again. And an actual talking about the seeds, I think, comes first in the book. The suicide comes after she's gone with her father down the line. Right. That proceeds chronologically in story. Wait. It, may be, it may be because of the story. I didn't read enough of it again to know <laughs> whether in reality it was. I'm going to have to go back now and light it. Yeah, because I had a question about it. Yeah. Okay, I want to. I want to throw on a. Hot Wait, let me because because okay. I want you to. I, I want to, this is really important. What Sue's brought up is a real. You know that, um, very often scenes in a story can get inverted. People can go back in memory. Right. We saw that in Faulkner a lot, mm -hmm. because we know in memory we can be sitting in a room and suddenly our memory takes us back, and even when we're in the middle of something like this, suddenly we'll be like forty years ago with a memory, and it has a part of. The present. So there's a difference between actual chronology, the actual sequence invention, which we say call reality, and the, re the construct of it, the story where things might get rearranged. We know that from Faulkner well, right? So be clear that sometimes what happens um, in the sequence in which the story is presented doesn't always correspond to the sequence in which they may have taken place in reality, even if there was no reality that they referred to. But Sue, so go ahead, sorry. No, I just no, wanted okay. you, because that's such a good distinction, and it's good to... And I didn't read maybe enough, but, but I put pages down. I went back and highlighted the, yeah. the dream vision parts right. and, the, and the, the pictures. And, and the first one, the, the suicide, comes on page three, well, okay, this is on my Kindle, so maybe a little, mm -hmm. but on 318, right. right around in there. And the, the next one, the... Um, the suicide in our book's 317.18. Okay. And, but the one about this, the cavern, okay, wait a minute. Okay, then she talks about the cavern, and the 
tavern came on 290 or something like that, 288. You're talking about the sorting of the seeds now? Well, okay, but the sorting of the seeds, I just lost the sorting of the seeds. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorting of the seeds comes before she sees her father. It's on yeah, it's before she sees her father. Yeah. Yeah. The sorting of the seeds is when she begins writing the book. She comes back from the vision. But before she sees her father, and the suicide is after she has had the father experience. I'm going to have to go back and look at the seeds. Anyway, I didn't read enough. I mean, yeah. I didn't leave myself enough yeah. time to go back and be sure. But I was interested in the order changing. I mean, that's what noticed that what I mm. noticed. And I wondered why, and I didn't come to an answer. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back now and get clear myself on the exact sequence in, in which they take place. Let me give you a thought. What, what's the importance of sorting the seeds? If this is, if this is partly, it, an allegory of the spiritual life and the way things unfold. I'm assuming that there's an order. The this despair is, it, it isn't until she learns to see herself as Ungat that this all starts. Um, that's crucial. She has, she has to see that there's something wrong. She, then she tries to kill herself. Well, so, but she sees that, no, she has, she has evidence of things wrong before because Right. Um, but, the, but her reaction to it, the, see, she starts to sort, but her reaction to that is the gods are lying, and I've got to set this straight. So, but that happens first. That's sort of a, and, and I, yeah, okay. I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to have to my, go back to my other go theory ahead, go that ahead, is like go ahead. off the wall. I was struggling with even when I was reading it the first time. This book really spoke to me. And when I went back and reread it after Monday night, when you sent the email, that's when I thought, okay, I gotta look back at this and see if I can sort it out. Is it possible that, that Psyche is the god in Oriole, and they are one? And the god has gone through all the sacrifice to be in her. Oriole goes through those things painfully but they lead to the realization and the ability to get in touch with what is God within you. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't change it in this way, Sue, that it doesn't lead to a realization, it, lead, it leads to joy. Okay. That the, realiza the realization is there and it's unfolding, it gets you know, clearer and clearer with all that she's experiencing here. And you've sort of taken away the end of it, but, you, but we're there. I hope it's clear to everybody what Sue said, that. Psyche's a real person. It's just important to keep the literal protected because lots of people explain the mind. That's what the rationalist mind does. She's a sister, but allegorically, she's also an image of the, remember the, the anima naturalite Christiane, the naturally Christian soul, the image of Christ in every soul. So allegorically, she's an image of Christ working in the depths of her soul when she doesn't know it. And what it leads to at the end is not justice, but joy. So that's where the book is going. So yes to all of that. And I've got to straighten out the sequence, but let's take, what's the sorting out of the seeds? What's, how do, what does that correspond to exactly in Oriole's life? She describes it as a sorting out motives. So I'm going to say that it's, in, and it's interesting in light of what just happened last weekend. Last weekend, the, the people coming into the church underwent a rite of what was called scrutiny. I've never seen it in the church before. And I was so glad for it, because I thought, where did this lapse? 
I mean, why haven't we not seen it? How can anybody come into the church without undergoing a period of scrutiny? And, and Scott was very clear about it. It's a, it's a period in which people are asked to acknowledge their weaknesses, to look at what Satan does and you know, get serious about admitting them. It's like AA. Get serious about admitting them and knowing that you're going to have to undertake a struggle here. It seems to me that that mural has to do with something like that. The sorting out motives is important for, we call it an examination of the conscience. You have to look at what you're doing pretty seriously to sort them out, to put them in some order. When she, when she gathers the golden fleece in the order of the murals, that's third, <coughs> Psyche claps her hand. <coughs> We've talked about, I think it's her struggling to give beauty to herself when she sees that she's ugly and she realizes she can't do it on her own. The fourth one, Psyche and Oriole together, this is where Psyche's carrying the bull and the eagle brings it back. I think it's that, that, that period that I read where she's making these judgments, but she's learned, to, she's, she said, I'm dead already. There's, there's some way in which she's entered into death. The, remember the, the bull is death in the water of death. It's bringing back water from the land of the dead. So it's bringing back something of the dead, but Oriole doesn't go there. In the fourth one, she has to go down and meet the queen of the dead and come back and present beauty um, to Ungut, to make Ungut beautiful. So what is that, 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 um, that, that fifth one? The suicide, the, the sorting out, the golden fleece, and the bringing back the water of death. In the fifth one, Psyche has to go down with this basket um, to get beauty and bring it back and present it to Ungut for Ungut to be beautiful. What is that? What does that represent? Bear Ungut's son and die in childbed or change. We either we either bear this sin, this ugliness, and die or change. It has to be. And for this to happen, Psyche has to go into the underworld. Conversion? Is that the end? Conversion? Oh, conversion. Uh, what conversion it, of um, her motives, her, her realization, and her. She's transformed. Is that the end? Well, it, it seems to me this whole process is a conversion process, but there are these stages, and something, something final has to happen here. And I want to get to it, because to me, it's, it's the last one. It, it's the one in which Psyche undergoes pain. I mean, this is, this is Christ in the cross in some way. My own sense of it is this is a complete death. This is, she has to complete, before water was brought back from the deadlands, here Psyche has to go down. I think she has to die utterly. The yeah. other one, she was yeah, happy. Yeah, right. Clapping her hands. Right. This one was difficult. It's the only one that Oriole doesn't have a discreet analogy to. Yeah. Oriole's never asked to go down to the dead and bring back. This casket. What's the nature of that? If we look at these as temptations, struggles, and, and there's some order, I think, I think I'm going to have to look at this again, but... Um, but despair is early because it, it's, it's that that makes you want to get rid of it, the ugliness where you face it and over, it overwhelms you when you first look at your own sins. 
then you have to sort out motives and you have to long to try to become better. And then I think there's some dying to herself when she says, I was dead already, you know, when she makes this, that something, she's participating somehow in death, but it hasn't been complete, is my sense. When Psyche goes into the underworld, I think what Doc said is true, this may be the depth of the soul where, where, where the person is most identified with Christ in the death that he suffered. What's the, what's the temptation there? I want to be clear in this. What are, why is this so excruciating for, for Psyche, and what do we learn about the nature of that test? <clears throat> This whole thing, and I, I just didn't delve into each one. That's why I'm here, so we can delve into each one. Because well, you, you know, just, yeah, no. I mean, what was going through my mind through all these was Eve and Mary. You know, um, how the task—it doesn't matter what the task is. You're told to do it, sorting, and she said, "And I don't want to do it." Whereas Mary or Psyche just did it. She just did it. She was told to sort, so she sorted. She was told to, to get fleece, so she got the fleece. Like it wasn't, you know, there always seems to have to be a reason for Oriole to do it, you know, whereas Psyche just does it. And then at the end, this is the one thing that was hard for Psyche because all her temptations were to help people. It was like they were temptations of, not like Christ's temptations where, well, I don't know about that, but I was, I mean, okay, so I was thinking about the three temptations, of, but for me, these temptations were harder than like what sure. <laughs> you know well, what I mean. So, but, I, I, but that's if if it's him, <clears throat> he, something of that is here. Anybody else? We got to go because it's anybody else. What's the nature of the temptation? Specify it, because it's really clear. <laughs> that's why I'm here. <laughs> Tell me, Bob. <laughs> it's pity. Pity. Wait, now stop. I, I don't want to. We've been doing this from the beginning. If you got those of you who've been with me will know this, this is not small because pity is the one emotion that most resembles love. We've been talking about enabling from the very beginning of our work together. Go back to the Iliad. What was the, what was the great thing wrong that God answered at the end? Patroclus took pity on his people and said, You hard hearted man, let me wear your armor. He goes into the battle in Achilles' armor and is killed. What drives him? Pity. What's the one emotion that most overwhelms Dante that he has to get a hold of during the whole course of the Divine Comedy? Pity. Remember, he faints at the beginning with, when he's so overcome by the pain a number of times. And at the end, he kicks that prisoner. Lots of modern critics say he's just like the prisoners himself. He's finally learned to get under control and act in accord with God's justice. Um, we could go on and on and on. The greatest thing facing Psyche right now is pity that she sees people in need and she wants to rescue them. How much harder, I'm going to say, I mean, call me, I may get slammed for this. How much harder for women, I'm going to say there's something maternal and nurturing in women so that what's at issue here is just, I mean, universal for sure. Patroclus is the man, he dies um, because of pity. We've been talking about this forever, how important it was. Let me just define this for a minute to be really clear. Pity is the emotion that we feel when we identify with the suffering of somebody else. So there's an element of fear, right? We, there's something protective because we identify with that suffering. We want to alleviate it. How natural is that? 
But it's not love. And it's really, I mean, she's nowhere more Christ-like. I, I would say she's Christ. That this is, this is an image of the anima naturalite Christiani. It's the image of Christ in the soul. And she, ha she has got to die to herself. And the greatest temptation is to, to, to let pity substitute for love. If she does, it's gone. She will, not, she will not undergo the death, and that means something possessive, something selfish in her will not die. Yes? Yes. Yes? Have, have all of you met um, Oriole Cecilia back there? Wait, I hope there's not any question that there's an Oriole in every once in a while. I just, I can't. In abstractions, Mary, and I mean, this is, I want everybody to stay in the book here. This is, to me, an extraordinary thing, because it seems to me it's the one human emotion that it is naturally, is natural for us and tender, and the one that makes us most vulnerable to the wrong things. Imagine, if this is an image of Christ, imagine the strength that it takes to turn away from those moments, because she, she has got to die. So, one of the differences between the 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 fourth one and this one, in the fourth one they bring back the water of death. She doesn't go there; it's brought back. She participates in it. Socrates says, "Die to yourself." But it's clear that she, she's making judgments. She's doing things. What we're talking about here at the end is a death of another order. It is a complete extinction of the self in order to be renewed in the love of Christ. So I would say, just looking at the, at the sequence and what's at stake, is that in some ways this marks out the spiritual life. We begin to see the ugliness, we begin to sort out, to discern, or to, no, scrutiny is a better word, the examination of conscience. We, we struggle to become, we try to do good acts. Um, we die to ourselves. We genuinely work at dying to ourselves. But all of that won't find its final answer until all of its, even pity, dies. Because if pity doesn't die, I hope it's clear from what I've said, there's an element of ourself in it that, that we get away with because it looks so much like love. So, what goes, now, now, hold on. Fox brought her to this place, sorry, Fox, maybe I should stop. Fox brought her to this place for judgment. You know that Psyche arrives now and they both look in the pool and there's that wonderful moment when she says, you two are Psyche. That finally, finally, after this moment, finally, Oriwal is Psyche. And she knows a joy. Is this the judgment? Because she'll go on to say, I mean, this is, it's strange. I, I don't want to ignore these last words because you know how serious I am about reading closely. It ends with... Um, the priest taking her book and wanting to give it to somebody from the Greek, that is to a modern rationalist. Because nobody needs it more than those of us who use our minds to get away with things. But the, end of the book ends with, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. If you're in the presence of God and there is no answer, what is there to say? Nothing. What words will do? All words will cease. 
It's like the silence of joy. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might. What? <laughs> what? I might what? I was thinking that she just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Again, she said to herself, enough. <laughs> Do you have a thought, Doc? Still, or I might. Long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might. I might what? I don't know. I, no? my, I tried to figure it out. The only thing I could think of was I might have gone on doing that if you hadn't. Yeah. And I, so I wonder, I mean, I wonder. I mean, she just had this vision. She's not in heaven. She's a mortal. She's returning to moral life. We know she's going to die shortly. I wonder if this is Lewis's, I don't know. I wonder if this is Lewis's way of reminding us of her mortality. It's that there's something in her still inclining, but she's had the joy, and the fact that he cuts it here shows both that she's mortal, but there's nothing more to say. You know, that, that when you've known joy, it's not shut up. No. Listen, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's not shut up. The judge needed to say that early. It's now, there's no need for any words. Oh, yeah. She's in the presence. Her face is beautiful. She's. Well, didn't okay. he say that she fell on her pen? Mm -hmm. Isn't that where she died? Yes. Say again, what? Yeah. She did yeah. die. She, yeah. died. She, died. she couldn't finish the sentence because she died. I, this is Aaron's, Arnhem's report afterwards. We know that. Um, I mean, it, we could say that, but we're still left with that. You know, she was speaking. Or, or sorry, writing. Okay, enough. <laughs> Listen, before we all leave, all of you have a blessed Holy Week. Um, I hope all that you began to take on at the beginning of Lent, um, you carried through it well, and that you have a good Holy Week, especially um, Monday, Thursday, the special holiday, the washing of the feet, I mean, a holy day. And I hope you all have a blessed Easter, genuinely blessed Thank Easter. Thank you all. Uh, oh, that's oh, no, no. Yeah. Two, the, one week after Easter, we don't meet. The week after that, we do meet.